This podcast was recorded in a Zoom meeting with the Hartford Street Zen Center Sangha. Please visit hszc.org for information about how to join our online programs or to make a contribution. We depend on the generosity of our members and supporters, especially during this challenging time. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. I want to um, how's the sound? Can everyone hear? Thumbs up? Yes. Great. Um, I want to start out this morning by dedicating um, the merit of my practice um, to um, Sojin Mel Weitzman, um, who was uh, at Zen Center and at uh, Berkeley Zen Center, and who we uh, he transitioned this week. He's no longer with us, and. Um, he was special in the lives of many of us, but um, I literally um, would not be a priest, a Zen priest today, um, if it were not for Mel, um, for the very practical reason that he was the teacher of my teacher, uh, Michael Winger. Um, but more so in the run-up to the actual day of ordination, I had decided, um, which it turns out, like many um, folks about to be ordained, um, that this was probably a huge mistake and that I was not... <laughs> that I was not um, the right person for this. And so Mel and I had a long talk. He was participating in our teaching in the last, in the last uh, week. And he said, well, he said, a Zen priest, he said, in many faiths, the priest is like the, uh, the general leading his troops or her troops to victory. Um, but in Zen, um, the priest is like a farmer. You help plant the garden um, and you let go of whatever it is that grows there. What you, you're ready and accepting of whatever that grows. Um, and that teaching really was a turning of the Dharma wheel for me. Um, that, that the kind of service that one can provide by choosing a life of, of, uh, of a priest in Soto Zen um, really was about um, tilling the earth and, and, uh, and planting the seeds and nurturing them, but, but uh, hands off in terms of, of what, what happens. So, so I thank Mel for, um, uh, that teaching those many, many years ago, and for all of the wonderful teachings and service that he provided it at the Zen centers across the, the Bay Area. So thank you, Mel. So <clears throat> I want to start today with just a little poem that some of you have probably heard before. Um, it's called The Clearing by Martha Postlewaite, And it says, do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense forest of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize it and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. And of course, um, the interesting thing in the poem is um, you're not quite sure whether that poem refers to you being worthy of rescue or the, or the world, but it's probably, probably um, tied in. So I've been thinking a lot, um, and the title of the talk today is about creating sanctuary. And um, I, and probably many of you, um, rushed across the threshold of January 1st, um, looking over our shoulder, so really wonderfully happy and grateful to have 2020 behind us. Um, there were vaccines and a new political order. Um, new Year's Day in San Francisco was sunny and bright and beautiful. Um, and I found myself living with wise hope, I thought, and gratitude. Um, so we heard songs on the radio that day about the dawning of the age of Aquarius um, and lots of people talking about a new day had begun. 
And then <laughs> life continued to unfold as it does. Um, and our instruction in Buddhism to dwell happily in things exactly as they are um, has been uh, put to the test again. Um, so how do we live as, as, uh, as human beings and as Buddhists um, when life is frightening, potentially dangerous, complicated, or bewildering? It might seem a bit naive or even some sort of spiritual bypass or point of, of uh, privilege, white privilege, whatever kind of privilege, um, to say dwell happily with things as they are. Um, easier for some to do than others on a very practical, humane, day-to-day um, uh, -day level. But at the very least, um, um, I think it gives us an opportunity. Um, the fact is that we live, we all live together, and together we live in challenging times right now. Um, we came together this morning because I think, and I believe, that we have a desire to make the world a better place. Um, and as the Buddha taught, for me, for others, and the truly wise person works for the benefit of, of me and others. So I think that's why we come on Saturday morning um, and other times during the week <clears throat> to sit together, to be together, um, because we know that Zazen um, is the core of our practice and it's the opportunity for us all to be together, to be silent, um, to be equal, to have an opportunity to really assess <clears throat> what's going on inside us and what's going on in our world. Um, I know that myself and probably many of us showed up at Buddha's door seeking a sanctuary from our lives. Um, our lives, mine was at that point in time, um, um, pretty chaotic um, and, and uh, in need, <laughs> I, I was in need of some rest. I was uh, exhausted and perhaps broken and whatever. Um, Mel Weitzman himself actually used to do a teaching where he said no one showed up at the door of a Zen center um, whole and healthy. So um, that's, that's a judgment of course, but uh, my, my experience over 29 years has, has, uh, has given a lot of evidence to that in terms of the folks who, who I've had the wonderful opportunity to meet and work with. So sanctuary is defined as a safe place uh, in some definitions, <clears throat> excuse me, a holy place, a refuge. Um, in the free dictionary, it's defined as a condition of being protected or comforted. And so for me, I think that's what, that, what I'm really talking about when I talk about creating sanctuary. When I came to Buddhism, I was seeking a safe place. Um, I was seeking people and practices that could make me feel whole again. Um, opportunities for my inner life to be aligned with, my, with the outer life. Um, and as I learned from the teachings of the Buddha, um, I got a surprise. Um, as I learned, I, I had a revelation that the way to find such a place was twofold. First, to look inside, to really pay attention to me, and then to act outside, to be of service. So those seem to be the, the two um, principles that everybody who um, taught me, everybody who was patient with me as I tried to learn, um, kept expressing over and over again. Look inside, bring mindful awareness, and then act outside, be of service, be an engaged Buddhist. So the first part of that is the looking inside. And the teachings seem to suggest that a sanctuary um, is co-located <clears throat> um, with my abiding sense of disease or discomfort at that time, uncomfortableness, um, suffering, dukkha, um, with cycles of trying to be a connected, compassionate human being, that they were deeply um, embedded, some might say enmeshed. Um, and that in some of the very early Buddhist writings, what I found was that the path 
of the Buddha was in some early writings described as threefold, morality, meditation, and wisdom. And that that could be the full spectrum of a Buddhist practice. So I myself had been raised in a spiritual tradition that had lots of rules about right and wrong. Um, we had judgments, confession, repentance, um, shame and guilt, uh, lots of things going on. Um, but we were human. And we also had faith leaders who blatantly taught the rules of God with, with fire and brimstone, um, and then who followed various paths of the flesh, something like greed, hate, and delusion. Um, they were human um, and flawed humans, as, as are we all, um, some more so than others, as it turned out. When I got to Buddha's door, um, as I said, a bit broken and in need of sanctuary from the chaos of the world, some of which I had created myself quite expertly, um, I wasn't sure what a good workable definition of morality even was. I, was. I was so confused at that point. How could I be the kind of person I wanted to be if truthfully, um, I wasn't exactly sure what kind of person I did want to be. Um, so to do that assessment of who and what I am and who would I like to be requires that you have some notion of that. And I had lived a good part of my life struggling to survive. Um, uh, various kinds of abuse and oppression and, and just life in general. Um, don't mean to make it sound more dramatic than, than it was. But, you know, I had a, a, a pretty a decent life at that point. I'd managed to get through a few college and graduate programs. Um, as my father used to say, how many degrees can you get before you actually have to go get a job? Um, the answer to that turns out to be four. Um, but, um, and I did those degrees through um, a lot of, of hard work um, and a fair amount of corner cutting. That, that, seemed, to be, that seemed to be a good path. Um, and then I had built, built a career for myself by the time I found my way to Buddhism um, that sustained and frequently nurtured me. Um, truth to be told, uh, I thought of myself as a collectivist. I worked in social justice. I had all um, um, not-for-profit jobs in, engaged in, in the promotion of health um, for uh, for various folks. Um, health justice was, was my entire career and mental health justice. Um, uh, and, and truth to be told, when I look back at it now, um, I had a lot of interesting jobs because sometimes um, I uh, used my skills to get those jobs, often in, in social justice and collectivism, um, and getting those jobs sometimes involved stepping around um, or perhaps over someone else to get there. So as I look back on it, even, even that right livelihood um, sometimes was fraught with that question about what is true morality? What is the meaning of, of a, a moral life? So anyway, most of you know the path, um, even though um, we have the honor and privilege to do the work we do um, in, in hopefully right livelihood. Um, like the priests of my youth, social engagement was about out there. I could, I could go out and do the good work um, but I really was um, missing the, the necessity or the opportunity to do the internal work, um, to do a, a, a sort of a turn inwards and slow down and stop and say, okay, so who is, who is this doing this work? Who is this um, living in these communities? And um, what kind of person can, can, can he be? So in Dale Wright's um, book called The Six, uh, the Six Perfections, um, he starts with a simple question. Um, how shall I live and what kind of person shall I be? And that really was when I got to Buddhism and as, I've, and as I have been a student for many, many years, that is the question. Um, how shall I live? And that doesn't mean just um, from nine to five when I'm working or 
or on Saturday mornings if I'm giving a Dharma talk that people um, are listening to um, and looking at me in a little tiny square in the, in the corner. Um, but, but what it means is what kind of person will I be all the time? Um, when I'm getting ready to go to a conversation, um, am I uh, planning how to, how to win the conversation or am I opening my heart to really hear what the other person has to say? After I've had the conversation, um, uh, or as I'm having the conversation, am I truly listening and being present and creating a safe space for that person to express what he, she, or they are feeling and, and needing to express? Or am I busy thinking about what I need to say next to, to bring this to a close or to bring it to a conclusion that pleases me? Um, and as I walk away by myself um, and, uh, and leave any interaction, engagement I'm having with another human being, am I satisfied that I was fully present or am I thinking about, hmm, next time I should have said this or next time I'll say this or whatever. So uh, awakening, um, he says in, in his book, is, is not enough. Um, whatever we realize must be integrated into how we actually live every moment, every day. So it's not about how thoroughly I study the Dharma um, or how closely I stick to the forms and practices. Those are both important. Um, it's not even um, just um, what I do with my, my brief and fleeting moments of something that feels like awakening or liberation. Um, it's about what I do moment to moment, person to person with this experience of being invited to and supported on the Buddha's path. The Buddha teaches us that um, reading the Dharma is like having a cup of tea, living the Dharma is drinking the tea. So to actually be doing it as an experience. Um, so I've been reading and thinking about the six perfections um, and, and um, both Wright's book and taking another look at Norman Fisher's book and, and, and others. Um, and Wright's book is subtitled The Cultivation of Character. And that, that seems like a really important thing for us as Buddhists to really be working on. I take this um, to mean that how we show up with friendliness and kindness always. Um, the cultivation of character is about um, all of that. Um, and it's about doing it from morning to night. It's about it being an organizing principle in my life. Um, so <clears throat> when I'm alone, when I'm with others, um, um, am I being someone who is friendly and kind? Um, when I watched the news on Wednesday evening, um, did I find myself um, rushing to judgment and truthfully um, a sentencing and, and watching preferred um, punishments rattle around in my brain? Um, so who was I in that moment? Did I say, what else is possible? These folks are suffering. They've been fed um, delusions, et cetera, whatever, something kind or, or not to say any of that, just to say, who are these people? Um, and why are they so angry and hurt? And may they find peace and ease? You know, just a simple prayer, may they find peace and ease. Um, and that's why we call this um, the, the uh, six perfections because we're not perfect, but we are trying to perfect the way we respond in life. So I get a chance when I'm thinking about um, the untimely uh, demise of some political leader um, uh, to say, nope, that's, that's uh, as, as uh, temporarily, momentarily tasty as that bite of, of uh, poison might be, um, it's, it is still a bite of poison. Um, and so who am I even in those trying moments um, like Wednesday? So the six professions, uh, perfections, excuse me, generosity, morality or ethical conduct, tolerance or patience, 
energy, which Norman describes as joyful effort, which I really appreciate, meditation and wisdom. Um, and they teach us about dimensions of what it means to be human. And they're called perfections because they teach us that all of that is work. We don't wake up one day wholly evolved as somebody who has a joyful effort um, to be patient with all beings and to be wise in, in all situations where we're called on. The perfection is, I, um, is, is something that I can continue to work towards, to perfect my behavior, to perfect my thinking, to perfect my words. Um, and, you know, in, in our life, in my life, I don't know about yours, um, that idea of perfection would be a grand excuse um, to give it all up and not be doing any work. Well, I can't be perfect, so why bother? Um, so I think instead we, we can understand the perfections uh, as the beginning of the work of moral development. Uh, and it gets, I can continue throughout my life without having to beat myself up on the days when I don't quite make it um, and when in the situations, uh, but I get the opportunity to say, ah, the perfection of wisdom, the perfection of patience, I get to keep trying um, every day at every hour, not just when it's convenient or comfortable for me. I get to keep working on it. So <clears throat> the center, <clears throat> excuse me, of what I've been <clears throat> thinking about this week <clears throat> is the uh, paramita of morality, uh, sila paramita, um, <clears throat> how a disciple of the Buddha should live. Um, and, you know, when we think about this, that the, the um, the Buddha, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, excuse me, um, said that it's like if we're trying to think about the North Star um, in order to go north. We look at the North Star in order to go north, but we don't ever expect to actually get to the North Star. We just expect to go north, you know, one step at a time, one walk at a time. So in our journey to find um, morality, to find the perfection of morality, I think um, we have this real opportunity to think about how we might do that, how we might be the kind of person that we wanna be um, one day at a time, um, that principles that we can um, live in with harmony and difference with other human beings and, and with the planet, in fact, um, so that we can find joy and peace and ease um, rather than be depleted by things like what happened on Wednesday. So, so I think this perfection of morality, this idea of, a, of careful and thorough look at how we should live um, can be really important. And as Buddhists, we have the precepts to guide us in that. And, you know, there are 14 precepts in Soto Zen, 10 great precepts. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh in his practice teaches five. And, and, uh, and, uh, and so I'll just mention a, a couple of them that, that in the way that I've been working with them and invite you when we have time to talk later to tell us how you're doing it. But the first one, of course, um, um, traditionally is do not kill, or um, Thich Nhat Hanh says refrain from harming, from harming living, living beings. Um, and so most of us, of course, don't kill in terms of actually taking the life of another sentient being. But there's so many ways to kill, to kill somebody's hope, to kill somebody's confidence, to kill somebody's sense of trust, to kill somebody's sense of intimacy. So there are many ways throughout the day that we can have a negative impact. Um, that is harming to others, that is diminishing to others. So the basis for engaged Buddhism as taught by Thich Nhat Hanh and many others is this idea of being actively engaged, um, not only in not harming, 
because the actual um, precept says, do not kill and do not allow others to kill. So if you see something, do something, as the saying says now. So I don't know about you, but what I wanna practice um, is to be front and center um, in my communities, in my sanghas, um, in my life and in my families um, and help myself and others to make choices about being less harming. For me, a big part of that is to slow down because I find that in the occasions in my life when I have been um, created harm for others is when I'm moving too fast and that I haven't slowed down enough to, to think about um, the, the impact of, of what I might be doing. So I need to balance um, my desire um, to have social justice and to have engaged Buddhism um, with another spiritual principle um, and the principle of it's none of my business. Um, that there are many times in life that we encounter other human beings who are getting along just fine um, and who have well thought out, well prayed about, well meditated about um, practices of their own that may not make sense to me, um, but there, there's no need for me um, to get involved. Um, and much of what goes on in our families and, and communities and sanghas, we tend to engage and react with because we wanna create change and we wanna fix things that we perceive to be broken. Um, but in my experience in the last 10 years, if we slow down enough, we sometimes realize that that's my interpretation of what's broken um, and isn't shared by others. And so the process of slowing down allows others and myself to, to um, come to an agenda for action that is inclusive um, and non-harming. Um, second one is about not stealing or not taking what is not freely giving. Um, you know, and in this one, we think about possessing um, nothing that should belong to others. Um, and, you know, this is, plays out in a couple ways, I think, in our, in our life. Um, when we consider some, something uh, as simple as enjoying works of art in a museum, we know that in the last few years, there's been a lot of, of a discovery about how many of those artifacts and historical pieces got into those museums. Um, and they were, you know, culturally appropriated or stolen from, from smaller um, uh, countries and, and uh, cultures. And so we get to think about um, how we enjoy works of art and is, is there a more humane way to do that? Um, and the second thing that comes to mind is when we eat a large, really delicious, tasty, expensive meal prepared by somebody in a kitchen of a restaurant whose children will go to bed hungry tonight. Um, we get to think about how we show up in the world um, so I'm certainly not saying, as any of you who know me uh, would know, um, that a disciple of the Buddha does not eat in restaurants. Um, although currently we can't eat in them anyway, so it's good practice. Um, but I think it's like following that North Star. How do we, how do we help create a world um, where the minimum wage, um, they were talking yesterday on the news, the minimum wage in, in, in a certain part of Florida is $5.15 an hour. Um, for restaurant workers and others. And, and here in San Francisco, it's $15 an hour. Um, but as we all know, you can't possibly pay the rent and feed your children with that. So how can we be engaged in supporting workers and community members um, uh, and, and not just um, being frustrated as I certainly have been um, that my restaurants and shops and salons are not available to me during the recent months. The third one is the inappropriate use of sexuality. And this is clear this year, we're in a world that is in so much need of intimacy, true and safe sharing, and the opportunity to be held safely and comfortably. Um, and it's also a world with a very mixed history of, of 
sex being completely tied up in power, oppression, and violence. So we need, I think, as we um, continue to move forward um, to create a world in which everyone can be safe within their own body, um, safe to love and be loved. And importantly, I think, where each person can be reminded or taught um, that they are worthy of love. As the Buddha taught us, if you search the entire world, you won't find anybody more worthy of your love than you. So <clears throat> the next one is the unkind speech. Um, and this is one that we've all, everybody's worked on right speech. If you've been around Buddhism for more than a few days, we, we all get a chance. Um, but Thich Nhat Hanh's writing, um, particularly this week, was really interesting. Um, he didn't write it this week, but, but when, I, when I read it this week, do not spread news that you not, do not know to be certain, and do not criticize or condemn things about which you are unsure of. And so starting um, uh, yeah, a long time ago in this current political and so cycle, um, I was getting phone calls on Wednesday um, from early in the morning till late at night from folks who had the latest news from Washington about who did what to who and what was going on. And, and, uh, and as each hour evolved, of course, whatever that hot news was from the last hour was now different um, and had been replaced. Um, the only thing was that the first hour allowed someone to, to really relish their angst and concern and, and depression. Um, and share that with whoever would answer the phone. Um, and then an hour later, when it got even worse, um, we could do it again. So it's, it's important in, in this one, as we try to develop a way of being moral people, a way of creating a sanctuary where we can all be safe. Um, I think it's important to think about our speech. Like, like, you know, we know that no one would willfully call somebody last Wednesday and try to make them feel angry or depressed or to exacerbate their feelings of fear or trepidation. Um, but I think what, what this precept invites us to do um, is to really um, think about the impact of what we say as well as the words that we're saying. So um, I think that's when we think about a speech in sanctuary, it's like creating a place where somebody doesn't have to be worried um, that the words that we speak, albeit with good intention, um, um, can cause distress. So the last one I want to talk about is the one that's uh, about intoxicating the mind uh, or of self or others. Um, and along with what I was just saying about the words, I think in Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching is really clear that he's not just talking about alcohol or drugs um, or gambling or whatever. Um, he's talking about anything that intoxicates the mind of self or others. Um, and so I would just offer that particularly this week, I'm really clear um, that CNN and Fox News are every bit as intoxicating as Jack Daniels and Coke. Um, and so I think it's um, a wonderful opportunity to create sanctuary for ourselves. Um, and, and I've made this vow many times, and some of you have, like, I'm not going to turn on CNN, whatever the week happens to be. There's going to be a lot of shit going down, and I'm not going to turn on CNN because I don't want to, because if I start, <laughs> I won't stop. And so I must confess that as good as I got this week was a, was a vow to myself on Wednesday that I was not going to turn on CNN. Um, and then the vow became, because <clears throat> I was doing some work on the computer, the vow became, well, every time that I need to take a break to go to the restroom or make some tea, maybe I'll just turn it on for a second. Yeah. And you can guess where that vow went um, as, the, as the day goes on. But I think... Um, that we have this opportunity when we think about sanctuary, we, we all need a safe place in which to grow, a, a safe garden in which um, our seeds can, you know, our karmic seeds can, can come forward. 
Um, and Buddhism teaches us a lot about that. You know, developing peace and serenity through ethical and consci conscientious living. Um, this is Thich Nhat Hanh. We can help our society to make a transition from one based on greed and consumerism to one based on thoughtfulness and compassionate action. And that can be our deepest value. And so as I was saying in the beginning, when I, when I first came and I was trying to think about, ah, how do I wanna live? What kind of person do I wanna be? Um, the important question is to go to find out what are our deepest values? Are, what are our values? Do we actually value having a compassionate society? Do we actually value having a society in which children um, are not hungry, et cetera? Um, and then figuring out how to do that. And I think, um, you know, I take, this teaching very seriously. Um, Dogen says in the Bindawa and on the Endeavor of the Way, Buddhist ancestors out of their kindness have opened the wide gate of compassion in order to let all sentient beings into realization. So our Buddhist practice becomes really important. It's not adjacent to um, my desire to be a moral person, to live with compassion and kindness. Um, it's not adjacent to Buddhist practice of Zazen and and uh, study and, and uh, rituals and forms. Um, it's, it is all practice. Every bit of that is practice. And so um, Dogen calls uh, Zazen elsewhere the Dharma gate of joyful ease. So if we're trying to uh, create a place of sanctuary for self and others and self and others, um, then our basic Buddhist practice of Zazen, um, what we did together this morning in the midst of this week that we're having in our country, um, and welcome to those who are watching our country from afar, probably with, with some, um, some concern, I would imagine. Um, but Zazen allows us, again, as I said in the beginning, to be equal, to be silent, to be held in compassion. Um, you know, there are, however many of us there are here today, um, and, and the wider sanghas that are practicing all around the world on this particular Saturday. Um, that, that it's this Dharma gate of joyful ease. So we can provide a place of stillness. Um, we can encourage and promote and, and hold um, this place of Buddhist practice that allows us, no matter what's going on in the rest of the world, to return to our inner life, to return to um, our Buddha nature, um, to arouse bodhicitta and kindness um, for others. So, Refuge from the storm, um, refuge from what was going on on Wednesday and other days in, in other countries, um, it's right here. It's in our heart mind. Um, wherever we happen to sit, um, and we can sit alone or with others, wherever we happen to do walking meditation, that can be in the zendo or at the beach, um, sanctuary from the chaos and the madness of our world is right here, and we have that. Um, and then just briefly, the second part of what I learned um, um, was to go outside. After finding spiritual practice and establishing spiritual practice and working really diligently to have um, the, the, Buddha's, the practice of the Buddha's path, um, then to go outside. Um, uh, the Bodhisattva business of creating safety for others. Um, it is, we get this opportunity and, and I don't need to make up words for this because we all know um, uh, the Bodhisattva prayer written by Shantideva. So quickly, may I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles, 
and for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and sky until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. So, you know, in, in, not always, in his book, Not Always So, Suzuki Roshi says, you think you can only establish two practice after you attain enlightenment, but that's not so. So again, coming back to how do we do this? And if we can't do it exactly right, maybe we shouldn't be doing it because we might teach someone the wrong way. <clears throat> but nothing we, um, we see or do or hear is perfect. Suzuki Roshi says, um, true practice is established in delusion, in frustration. If you make some mistakes, that's where you establish your practice. There is no other place for you to establish practice. So I've been thinking about um, this a lot lately and um, um, Sharon Salzberg's new book, which I mentioned last time I spoke here, is called Real Change and it, it's a, I highly recommend it. Um, but um, she says that um, I've been working, um, uh, she says this year particularly, um, to have a place that is grounded in peace and ease um, and to be satisfied with things just as they are and to want to create change. So I've had a good life in the last few years and, and you know, I'm retired and I get to do a few projects that I want to do and get to do some teaching when I have the opportunity. Um, but as I've experienced the level of grief and exasperation and sadness in many people um, based on uh, shelter in place for the last 11 months, um, and as I've looked at the willful delusion um, uh, and the angst that that created in folks in DC, not just the terrorists and the, and the protesters, but the elected officials um, who tormented them with um, delusion. As I look at the preventable situation of 400,000 um, of our family members and friends dying of unnecessarily of COVID-19. And as I share that uh, statistic of that one in five children in America will go to bed hungry tonight. Um, Sharon says that deep in our hearts, we all long for a feeling of being at home in this body, in this mind, with somebody else perhaps, but on this planet. Somewhere, if we look carefully at our actions, what we say or do, what we refrain from saying or doing, we can sense within them an urge towards wholeness, towards happiness, towards connection. This urge to find a home, to find happiness, to find a sanctuary, and to make ourselves feel whole again. Sharon concludes that paragraph by saying, um, this message is hidden deep inside each of us, telling us to take care of ourselves, and that word is plural, ourselves, us and others. So I think that um, we have this wonderful opportunity to take a look at the world that we live in, um, which has good days and bad days, good hours and bad hours. Um, I think that um, Norman Fisher in his book, when he talks about this energy, he says that what's required is energy and diligence, and he calls that joyful effort. So that while the days might seem difficult and the, and the practice might seem um, complex, he says that um, Bodhisattva has love and desire to be of service and that that love and desire must be limitless. So, you know, I think I have limits. And, and so that's what this topic is important for me um, because I think that I am willing to work for the good of myself and the good of each of you and the good of the planet. Um, but, um, but that there definitely are limits um, that, that take place. Um, I get tired sometimes or frustrated, or it's just easier to come in the house and um, not watch CNN, but watch that other poison called Netflix. Um, uh, and uh, 
So I have this opportunity to do this work this season that I've been working on, which is to discover um, what kind of human being do I want to be? And what are my values? What are the morals that lead me um, to want to be engaged and to want to do that with patience and kindness and love um, and to want to do that from a place of uh, Zazen uh, and take the mind of Zazen when I get up off that cushion and take it with me, remembering that slow is okay, that pausing is okay, that focusing on the breath is okay, um, and that there's no need, there's nobody in this entire world waiting for me to be in charge of everything. So that going back to that collectivism, going back to um, the kind of culture in which Buddhism was founded, um, where people genuinely cared for themselves and each other, um, is exactly, I think, um, what Mel Weitzman was teaching us when he said being engaged in Buddhism or being a priest in Buddhism um, is like being the farmer. We plant the seeds and step back, allowing whatever it is to grow. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen, for your talk. Please uh, put up a hand. David. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, I'm wondering uh, what you would say about engaged Buddhism in the time of COVID. Uh, because I have uh, moments of uh, frustration that, you know, I would, I, would, I would like to go to like a climate change rally or a Black Lives Matter event or something like that to try and involve myself. And, uh, but since I'm at a, in an at-risk at group, I'm extremely hesitant to get outside of my bubble. What do you think? Yeah, I think, um, thank you, David. I think engaged Buddhism, you know, it's, it says, the teaching says it starts with us, us and then others, and then us and others. And, and so I think there's a couple things. One is on a very, um, what I've been trying to practice with is to really help people um, to not be getting their health information from CNN or any of those other sources. People, people can be, become tremendously upset when they read the statistics. And, and I was in a conversation the other day after a meeting where there were four people, all of whom were giving the statistics for San Francisco, um, all four of whom were absolutely determined about what the level was and all four of them had different information. Um, so I think that one of the things we can do is to try to be, uh, uh, in terms of COVID is from our place of stillness and peace, we can say to people, um, only take in the information that's useful to you um, and as the right speech one says, uh, only, only comment on information about which you are sure. So if you're not sure, um, and if you're prone to, you know, I used to work in public health and read epidemiology reports every Monday morning, that was my job, um, and, and would freak out every Monday afternoon about what numbers had gone up or whatever, um, and the next Monday they'd be different. And so I think it's one of the things we can do simply is to help people to not um, deliberately manufacture misery in their lives by taking in overloads of information that is of, of questionable um, validity. So that's one simple way we can do it. It's just to help people, if they need to talk about COVID, talk about it, but talk about it in ways that you just did of how do we protect ourselves. And so I do think on that second part that the engagement um, there are ways people can do um, um, support um, those movements that you talked about. 
um, from home by making some phone calls, by writing some letters, by sending some postcards, by um, if your circumstance allows sending, sending a little donation to the, to the group that's doing the organizing. So there are ways that make sense if we're at a high risk group, uh, in a high risk group, um, and, and I'm in a couple of them, um, that it makes sense not to go and in, in, um, be in large public spaces um, um, for, for all the reasons that we would all imagine. And so I think as much as I wanna support various, um, um, you know, certainly um, um, feeding the children and Black Lives Matters and, and other uh, causes, um, it, it does not make sense for me to go um, rally on, on City Hall Plaza. It's just at this point. Um, doesn't make sense. If other people can do that because of the level of their, that they've assessed of their risk um, and they're planning to mask and socially distance, um, I support that and think it's wonderful. But, but I think um, I've let myself, uh, you know, it's like I, I, there are many other dangerous things we could do is, you know, um, last year they decided in a couple of the protests to close down highways by walking out onto interstate highways in, in a large group. Um, and that's not a particular protest I would have joined in um, because it seems to me that the benefit of the protest is not worth the danger to the lives of the people that you're sending out into, into the street. And so with COVID, I think we can find a way to be supportive of the causes we want um, and to encourage others to be supportive of the causes without putting our lives or the lives of others in danger by showing up in, in places that are potentially super spreader events. Unmute yourself. Anybody else have a thought or question? Yes, uh, Stephen, this is Janusz. Thank you. Hi, Janusz. For your talk, it was very timely. And um, I also this week have uh, been pulled into um, listening to uh, MSNBC and CNN and in uh, off center. And sort of my question is twofold is that uh, I'm a therapist and I work with a lot of folks who have trauma. And, you know, when you're in the middle of a trauma, you know, when, when the boat is sinking, you, when there's a fire around, you know, if the, if the, the Zendo is on fire, it's like all hands on deck. Okay. You know, my, my focus is a hundred percent on putting out that fire. And then what happens is after the fire has been put out, you can become hypervigilant. Oh, did I see a little fire here? Oh, okay. Put that out, put that out. Oh my God, there's cinders over here. And so it's like I realize, all right, after this trauma where the, the house is on fire and I didn't realize how dangerous it is, um, you know, what are some other factors I need to make sure that, you know, new fires are not going to be put uh, started around me? Mm -hmm. And so I've noticed that, you know, yeah, I, I do need that stepping back to recenter, mm -hmm. um, uh, to 
find my sense of peace and uh, that's what I find in Zazen is like how then to engage. And I have to say that how do you balance that when you are in this state where you know things don't feel safe there has been a real fire and i do need to kind of look around and saying oh okay is there you know something that i need to do uh to make sure that this stays safe so you know it is this this question of safety that has erupted is into um our consciousness is like saying, wow, things are, are much more volatile, <laughs> even though I thought it was very, you know, volatile all along for the past four years, then I realize, and uh, how do I balance not overreacting and finding my sense of peace uh, and how to engage? So it's when you're already hypervigilant. Yeah, thank you for that question. It's, um, I think there's a couple pieces to that. One is, um, that uh, the sense of creating sanctuary, creating a sac sacred, safe place for yourself internally um, becomes really important because in point of fact, um, if the boat is sinking, um, the most important thing people can do is sit still and, and, and let the people that know how to save the boat um, uh, do something um, until it's time to jump into the water and then you jump into the water. But panicking um, will simply make the boat tip over more quickly. And the same if there's a fire in a facility, um, the, the tendency would indeed be, if there was a fire right now, would be for all 16 of us to get up and run around if we were in a room together trying to put the fire out. The smarter thing would be for us to say, everyone except Stephen and Janos, get out, go out and be safe, and we're going to work on putting the fire out till the fire department comes. So that so that the immediate reaction, as, as I absolutely agree with you, the immediate reaction um, probably for most of us because of our personality types would be to be waving blankets and throwing cups of water and carrying on. Um, and, and that's generally not the best thing to do. Um, and then on the, on the other side of that, you know, we've experienced a trauma. You know, people that watch that go on on Wednesday, people who were there, um, people who are the families of those, uh, the five folks who were killed, um, the families of everybody else, um, and, and us as a country, we experienced trauma and our international guests as well. Um, and so one of the ways that I'm sure you know and others know that you work with trauma is to say, yeah, okay, so that could happen again. Um, and if it did um, this weekend, uh, as, as they're talking about or on, on uh, the inauguration, um, one assumes there'll be better plans. Um, but in any event, I'm not part of the National Guard, so I'm not gonna be there. Um, what I can do, sort of like my answer about COVID, what I can do is help folks to be calm about, you know, we're a nation of 380 million people um, and 4,000 of them showed up in Washington on Wednesday um, and a couple hundred of them um, behaved as terrorists. Um, and so the world that we live in is actually pretty safe. It's safe even though that happened. Now we need to pay attention because they represent folks across the country um, who have been scared um, into behaviors of criminality and hate and so forth and so on. We need to be aware of that and, and so forth. Um, but in terms of my getting ready for the possible um, uh, uh, 
manufacture of misery on the day of the inauguration um, is the best thing I can do is talk to other people calmly and, and quietly about, we got this new president and vice president coming in. It's uh, We've got um, possibilities um, for good work to be done on climate, good work to be done on racial justice, good work to be done on health justice. Um, let's, let's stay in that aware that the world is complicated and, and non-dualistic, so all that other stuff is going on. Um, but I think the trauma, and when I work with, as a therapist with folks with trauma, it's like, okay, so knowing when you actually are safe or are potentially safe, um, and that there's not actually a, a spark of fire in the corner of every room you go into. And so continuing to work until you say, yep, sometimes I'm in an old raggedy building with a fireplace and I need to be paying attention. Um, but sometimes um, I, I am actually safe. And so, so the degree to which we can turn down that heat and help people feel comfortable in the levels to which we are in fact safe most of the time.